Parshas Tazriya. Parshas Tazriya deals with many concepts that are, I guess what you would call foreign from Western thought. Things that we, in our common thinking, don't recognize, we don't deal with, weren't familiar with. So what I'd like to do with this parsha is first get a very quick structure of the area that we're going to deal with, and then we'll delve into it a little bit more because it'll make it easier to understand the entire concept. The area that we're going to deal with is the actual yoledis, the actual status change when a woman gives birth. And the first part of the parsha deals with just that, that if a woman gives birth, there are certain ramifications, certain rules, certain dinim that transpire. So the first thing the Pasuk begins, Hashem said to Moshe, saying, Tell the B'nai Yisrael, Isha ki tazria, when a woman conceives, when she has a child, v'yalda zachar, and she has a male child, v'tama shivas yomim, she should be Tamea seven days. So if a woman has a child, if the child is a boy, so then she's Tamea for seven days in the status of a Nida. The next Pasuk tells us, On the eighth day, you give that boy a bris. After those days, 33 days she sits in something called Deme Tahara. In all holiness, holy objects she shouldn't touch, and to the Mishkan, to the base of Mikdash, she shouldn't go, until the completion of the, the days of Tahara. Now, what the Pasuk here is describing is two different states of Tumah. There is the first called the status of Nidus, when a woman becomes a Nida, and the second is something called Demei Tahara. When a woman gives birth, the first seven days, if it's a zohar, if it's a boy, are demei tahara. Any blood that she sees gives her the status of a nida. For our concern here, the primary issue of the status of nida is that it makes her forbidden to her husband. The next 33 days after that, she, has had, she sees what's called demei tahara. Any blood that she sees during those 33 days also has a status of tumah, but it's different than the first status. It's called Demei Tahara. Now, the halacha is that after seven days, if a woman stopped bleeding, she'd be allowed to go to the mikvah, and at that point, she'd be for, per, permitted to her husband. If she bled during the next 33 days, she would not, those bloods would not make her forbidden to her husband. They're called Demei Tahara. She's not allowed to touch Kodesh. She's not allowed to touch holy things. She's not allowed to go into the base of Mikdash. So it does have a status of Tumah, but not in regards to forbidding her to the husband. So the first seven days are the Demei Nida, makes her status of Nida, which forbids her to her husband. The second days, the 33 days for a Zahar, makes her to a lower level. It forbids her to go into the base of Mikdash, but doesn't forbid her to the husband. Now, if it's in a keva, if she gave birth to a female, then the Tamea Shuvayim, then she's Tamea for two weeks, 14 days, Kenidasa, Veshishimim, Veshishishamim, Teshevah, Demei Tahara. And then 66 days she has this Demei Tahara. So if, in fact, she gave birth to a female, then it's 14 days that she's in the status of Nida, forbidden to her husband. And then afterwards, 66 days, where she has the Demei Tahara, where again, they don't forbid her from being with her husband, but they do forbid her from being in the base of Migdash. At the end, <clears throat> at the completion of these days, <clears throat> she should bring a keves, a less than one year old sheep, as an ola. And we'll discuss a little bit later what an ola is and why she has to bring it, but it's a carbon as a kapara, as a atonement. 
uvenyona otor l'chatas, and she has to bring a chatas. A chatas is also a <coughs> atonement, but it's here the second is a benyona, either a pigeon or a, a type of turtle dove. El pesach omeid a coin to the pesach oel <coughs> to the coin. Then the next pasuk tells us that the coin brings it v'chiper lez mechaper, and this is a Torah siyoledes. However, the last pasuk ends im lotimsa yada de If she does not, if she can't afford this se, again she has to bring two carbons, the keves, which is the sheep, as an ola. <coughs> Let's assume she can't afford that. Then v'lachashtei torim. Then she takes two of these birds, oshnei benayona, either the pigeons or the doves. Echel leola vechal chatas, one for an ola and one for chatas. Lachaper aleha v'chiper aleha will be an atonement for her. Hakoyim v'tehera, and she'll become tohar. Okay, so let's spend some time seeing if we can understand some of the mechanics and some of the concepts that the Torah relates to us in this parsha of Yoledis. So let me begin begin with an observation. My father was born in Germany, and he spent the year wars, Baruch Hashem, not there, but rather in England. And he described to me that often they had questions when they were reading about the war, there were things that they didn't understand. He described that one day he read the papers that said that the Allies had just bombed heavy water plants in Germany. And he said it astonished him. Why in the world would they waste good bombs on heavy water, whatever that is? And it wasn't until after the war that everyone understood why the Allies were very concerned with bombing the heavy water plants. Heavy water is a production process that's very much needed to produce plutonium for the atomic bomb. The Allies and the Axis, the Nazis versus the free world, were having a race as to who would discover the secret of releasing atomic energy first. Clearly, the Allies won, but part of the process was the Allies realized that the Germans were already involved in the steps. They bombed the heavy water plants to slow down the Germans' progression. What man discovered was an entire world that was underneath the surface, You see, until the discovery of the atom, and certainly until the release of atomic energy in a real sense by bomb being dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, man had no idea of entire worlds that existed. If you took took a man, an intelligent, well-educated man from the mid-1800s, and told him that actually all matter really is comprised of, of, of molecules, and really it's on an atomic level, it's electrons spinning around. In fact, most of matter is just emptiness, and really all it is is bonds and electrons spinning around huge vasts of empty space, the man would have looked at you as if you were from Mars. But that reality mankind has discovered, that much of matter, in fact all of matter really is an illusion. It looks very solid. If I punch my hand into it, it's very solid. But the actual structure of it is energy, bonds, electronics, atoms in formation with parts of them spinning around, the constant motion, which is the energy force, which actually creates the feeling of substance of solidity, is actually just electrons spinning around in very, very rapid evolutions. Now, the point is that as sophisticated as man was for thousands of years, there was an entire sub-world that he was unaware of, an entire world that actually was the underpinning of the physical world, and actually was really and is the physical world, but man was unaware of it. When man discovered it, what he found was 
he could do things of astonishing power. And in fact, when you blow up a city with a bomb that weighs 800 pounds, it is astonishing. You take an 800-pound bomb and an entire city, blocks and blocks, neighborhoods and neighborhoods are leveled, you begin to understand that there's power within the world that man up until that point was unaware of. I've heard it said over that if man could learn to release all of the energy in the atom, the most inert object, if you took a piece of chalk, took a piece of chalk and released all the energy contained in it, there'd be enough energy there to heat up the Pacific Ocean. The point being there's a subworld and there are laws to that subworld, and if you learn to tap into them, you can make tremendous differences and have tremendous impact. As man has developed in physical science, Western thought has remained incredibly ignorant to whole other worlds of existence. And much of psychology, Western man is unaware of. Much of really what causes the human to do things, Western man is unaware of. And certainly levels in spirituality from a physical science perspective, mankind is clueless to. As an example, when the clients were traveling in the Midbar, the Pusik tells us that they got to Eretz Shittim. And the Chizkuni, one of the Rishonim, is bothered by, why do we need to know what land it was specifically? It doesn't matter. It's all the Midbar. The Midbar is basically a vast emptiness. It's not all sand. I mean, granted, there are rocks and things and mountains, etc., but, but it's irrelevant that they ended up there. It explains the Chizkuni, no. The Torah is teaching us very, something very specific. <clears throat> it explains that there are different lands that give off, give off different spiritual properties. Eretz Shittim was a place that caused an increase in desire, an increase in desire for, for inappropriate sexual relations. It was an Eretz Shittim that caused the Klein soul to be involved in the Benos Moab. Because what we're unaware of is that there are different properties in the world. For instance, if you go to Yerushalayim, you can feel something different. Watch a secular Jew approach the Kotel. He didn't think about it. He never realized it. He walks and he changes. As he gets closer and closer, he changes. He puts his hand on that wall and tears start streaming down his face. And if you ask him, why are you crying? What, what, is, what are you thinking about? Oftentimes he can't describe it. He can't recognize it. He can't describe it, but it's something. Different lands have different levels of kadusha, different levels of impurity, if you wonder why San Francisco is what San Francisco is, it's not just because of sociological factors. It's likely because there's more tumma in that area. It's a different sort of place, and it emits a very different sort of aura that affects people in different ways. Tumma and tahara are very real. They're states of purity or impurity that affect people in a very real way. If you touch a dead body, you are tummy. Now, what does that mean? Is your hand different? Do you, do you suddenly turn black or do you turn green or do you turn purple? What, what do you mean you're different? If the base of Mikdash was around, you wouldn't be allowed into the base of Mikdash. Why? Because you're tummy. What do you mean you're tummy? You're impure. It's very difficult to feel it because it's not a physical manifestation. But there's a level of receptivity in your soul that now has been deadened, has been somewhat numbed. It's more difficult for you to feel Hashem's presence, more difficult for you to feel Shabbos. There's a certain change in you, not in a physical sense, not in your, not even in your atoms or your molecules, but in the subterranean, 
the sub part that keeps the world in existence, the spiritual part has been changed. You are tummy, and until you get the water, the meachatas, until you have the water sprinkled upon you, and the process done, you will remain in that state. Unfortunately, now the base of Migdash isn't here, so we're all considered in that level of Tumah, and therefore <clears throat> it is difficult for us to experience certain things, to feel certain, th- certain things, but that is a state of Tumah. Now, with that being said, modern psychology has made great advances in certain areas of understanding the human. If you ask psychologists today to describe why child A acts as he does, and child B <clears throat> acts as he does. Most psychologists will present to you a nature-nurture balance, meaning to say every child by birth has a certain nature, depending on the parents, depending on what genetic transmissions were put into him. By nature, he has a certain temperament, a certain way, a certain approach. Daniel Goleman, in his book, Emotional Intelligence, writes that at 22 months of age, they can determine the nature of the child, extroverted or introverted, bold or timid, because hardwired into birth are many of the natures, instincts, desires, temperament of the child, and that's what we call nurture. The other side of the coin is what's called nature. Nature means the experiences, what the child was exposed to, how was the child brought up. Was he brought up in a rigid environment with a domineering father or mother? Was he brought up in a more open environment? What was he exposed to that will shape his nature? So this combination of nature and nurture is now considered to be what makes the child. Okay. Now, on some level, psychologists have made some progress in understanding how nurture can affect a child. Some are obvious. If you abuse a child and constantly bombard him with criticism, obviously you're going to have a child with great issues of self, sense of self, great issues of feeling good about themselves, and that part is pretty obvious. But what psychologists are largely clueless to is how do you shape the nature of the child? How do you determine his temperament? Why is it that some children are naturally angry? Some children are very calm. Why is it that some children are just very generous and some are stingy? Why? Now, interestingly, science has made some advances in terms of the effect of the mother's activities on the child. For instance, it's now commonly accepted in all medical practices that mothers shouldn't smoke, not just because it's dangerous to the mother's health, but because it damages the fetus. Because when the mother smokes, in her stomach, in her womb, is forming the baby, and that baby is damaged because what the mother takes in greatly impacts and affects the child. The shach on this parsha explains that you know why this parsha of Tazria is right after the parsha who were told in Shemini about foods to eat and foods not to eat? He explains because that's part of the process of the formation of the child. If the mother is careful not to ingest foods that are not kosher, she'll have a different child. If she eats foods that are tummy, she eats foods that are not kosher, she puts into herself and into the child a very different type of personality, a different nature. That child will come out less sensitive to holiness, a different sort of being. As a matter of fact, the Ksav Sofer takes it one step further. He says, for that reason, the Halach and Shulchan Aruch is that if a woman is nursing, she's forbidden to eat foods 
that are asurim because it damages directly the child. And it's very interesting, a little bit off topic, but a very interesting point. The Bach tells us that even though the halach is that a Jewish woman who gives birth to a baby and wants to use a non-Jewish nursemaid is allowed, that happens to be the halacha, but you should never do it. And explains the Bach why not, because look what happened with Moshe. When Yochevet gave birth to Moshe, and Yochevet brought this baby, baby was brought, Miriam brought it to the, to the Nile, and Batya went and found this baby. Batya brought this baby, Moshe, around to all the, Jew, all the Egyptian nursemaids, and the baby would not take from any of them. Miriam, who was watching, said, should I find you a Jewish nursemaid? Maybe he'll only take from a Jewish woman. Batya said, go do it. Miriam went and ran get Yochevet, Moshe's mother, and in fact, that's who brought up Moshe the first 24 months of his life. Says the Bach, from here we see that even though it may be permitted for a Jewish baby to drink milk from a non-Jewish woman, you should never do it, and the halach is, we don't. Now, this Bach is very difficult to understand, because there's a reason why that baby was not supposed to drink milk from a Mitzri woman. That baby was Moshe. Moshe was to be the one who was to receive the Torah from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He was supposed to speak to Hashem Peh and it's not appropriate for such a holy future child to be, who's going to be the leader of the Jewish nation, who's going to speak directly to Hashem. Obviously, for such a holy mouth to drink from a woman who's Tamea would be inappropriate. But what connection does that have to a regular Jewish child? And I've heard it explained that what the Bach is teaching us is that's how you bring up any Jewish child, meaning to say a Jewish child is holy, and you treat it as if this child is going to speak to Hashem because that's the potential. Every human being, every Jew has a potential to be like Moshe Rabbeinu, and this child has that future. Don't give him a non-Jewish nursemaid because he has to remain holy. But the point being that what the woman ingests affects directly the child in her womb, and certainly when she's nursing, it does the same. Now, that is an introduction. Let's focus on the status called nidus, the status of impurity. When a woman bleeds, during that time, she is in a status of being a tamea. She is impure. Obviously, as we mentioned, she can't go into the base of Megdish, but additionally, she's forbidden to her husband. Now, why is that? Why is it that the Torah forbids her from being with her husband during that time. And there are a number of reasons, and I'd like to focus on two. The primary reason why a woman who is in that state is forbidden to be with her husband should be a question, meaning to say there's no reason why a man can't become tummy. If he's not a coin, he's allowed. Why can't he physically be with her? The primary reason is because any child born in that state will be a different child. You see, when a woman is Tamea, if she has a child in that state, that child, the Gemara tells us, is a different sort of child, an az panim, a child who has bad midos, who's either insensitive or cruel. It affects the temperament of the child because the woman is in a state of impurity. And the reason, one of the reasons why the Torah says that a husband and wife must separate is because if they have a child in that state, that child will be different that child will be a azpanim, and bad midos is what you'll see from that child. And again, that's one of the reasons why the Torah forbids a husband from being with his wife when she's in that state. 
Now, it's very interesting because Ramosha has a tshuva on a very, very pertinent topic. What happens if a young man is read a shidduch with a young woman, and she's a fine young woman, wonderful balas Torah, balas Midos, everything good, except she's a balas tshuva. And what that means is, most likely, if not definitely, her mother was in the status of Nidus. <clears throat> she was a Nida when she had her. Meaning to say, <clears throat> when a woman first has her period, at whatever age, 12 or 13, if she doesn't go to the mikveh, she remains a Nida for life. So obviously, <clears throat> this young woman who's now a Balas Chuva, she's very good. <clears throat> she's a wonderful Balas Midos, but genetically transmitted within her is <clears throat> that Az Panim Mida, that character trait of being cruel, <clears throat> merciless, very, <clears throat> very harsh. So, <clears throat> Explains Ramosha, granted she may have been kovish her nature, she conquered herself, but genetically within her is that transmission. So why in the world would you, a regular person, marry such a woman when your children are going to get that genetic transmission? And he was asked this question, should a person try to avoid a balas tshuva or the opposite, avoid a balas for that reason? And while Ramosha explains that the mechanics are correct, he explains there's one thing that you have to take into account. He explains as follows. If you're looking at a young woman who is a fine balas midos, that means something is unusual. If she is the daughter of a woman who, when she was with her husband, was a nida, then it doesn't make sense that she should have such good midos. And therefore you have to assume that actually the woman was tahora when she had this child. She was actually pure. I asked me, how could that be? And explains her emotion quite simply. <clears throat> Let's say the woman went to the ocean. The ocean is 100% kosher mikvah. Or let's say she was in a hotel in a large pool. Any pool that's in the ground that's actually connected to the actual ground and, and is open, the rainwater will enter it, is effectively a kosher mikvah. Now, we may not use it for certain reasons, but we could assume that if this young woman is a person of good midos, we could assume that obviously her mother must have been tahora. Hashem arranged it that she went to the the beach or went to the hotel beforehand. Ah, you'll ask me if she had a bathing suit on and chatzitza, midirais, from a Torah perspective, that's not a problem. <clears throat> and therefore, writes Ramosha, you have a right to assume that she was actually tahora. And therefore, he says, Allah is that there's no reason to avoid going out with such a woman. <clears throat> if she herself now has fine character traits, you assume that she was born not when her mother was in the need of status, and therefore you should not in any sense <clears throat> avoid such a shidduch if in fact it, everything else is good and proper. But the point that I'd like to focus on is that it's a given <clears throat> that if a woman is in the need of state and she has such a child, that that child will be different. The temperament, the nature of that child will be somewhat mm, difficult or explosive or angry or, <clears throat> or insensitive. Because again, what the parents do directly affect the result. And just as a woman smokes or ingests certain foods when she's pregnant, it will affect the child. Certainly the act of coming together of the husband and wife has a dramatic impact on the child. For that reason, Chazal recommend that when a husband and wife together, you try to make sure that your thoughts are as pure, that you're having in mind serving Hashem properly with holiness and certainly love and Mutual affection is a very, very integral part of coming together because all of it affects the next stage. And again, one of the reasons why the Torah forbade a husband and wife from being together during the state is because it will, in fact, 
have a direct impact on the child. <clears throat> the child born out of that nidus state will be <clears throat> a different sort of child. However, <clears throat> there are other reasons. The Gemara Nida tells us <clears throat> that Remeir said, Why is it that the Torah forbade a woman for a certain amount of time to her husband? The Marshal explains that really, even if you tell me there are other reasons <clears throat> for Nidus, namely Tumantara reasons, why does it have to be that long? And as a matter of fact, in our day and age, it's really quite long. It's twelve minimum of five and seven, a minimum of 12 days. Effectively, when a husband and wife, when a young couple get married, it's effectively two weeks on, two weeks off. <clears throat> it's a long period of Nidus status. <clears throat> Remeir says, why is it that the Torah said there should be such amount of time? Because otherwise, a husband will become accustomed to his wife, and he'll no longer <clears throat> desire her as much. <clears throat> She'll become almost loathsome in his eyes. says Let her be Tameya for that amount of time. In order that she become beloved to her husband. Just like the time when he took her to the chuppah. Explains Ramea that there's a certain cycle <clears throat> within human sexuality, within the dynamics of a relationship. If a wife was always permitted to her husband, in the beginning it's great, it's wonderful, there's desire, there's love, and etc. But after a while it gets boring, it gets old. He no longer looks at her with the same desire, with the same interest. He begins looking at her like, ugh. And gone is that powerful bonding tool. Gone is much of the attachment. And therefore the Torah says, "Uh uh-uh. It's going to be on and off. There's going to be a period where you separate from your wife. Each will then have that desire build up. And once a month they'll come together. And the same desire that he took her with when he first brought her under the chuppah, when he first married her, he'll have that cycle. Once a month he'll take her back with that same love, that same dedication. And when you read these words, you recognize how prophetic and how brilliant, obviously, they are. The Torah doesn't need our our haskama. But the point is that when you ask marriage therapists, what is one of the first tools they recommend to marriage in trouble? And oftentimes it's separate. Two weeks. For two weeks, don't touch. Try it. See what happens. And what happens is that oftentimes there's a renewal in the relationship. Now, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is our creator, and Hashem knows our nature. And the reason why Hashem put various systems into the mechanics of a marriage is because they work. Man now discovers them and says, oh, I get, I get it. But what Remeir is teaching us here is a very fundamental concept. And that is that there are cycles in the relationship. And if you want a good marriage, part of the reason why you should follow the Nidus system is because it will enhance your marriage in a very real way. See, the bottom line is that we human beings have certain desires, we have appetites. When you use them properly as the Torah wants, they're powerful mechanisms and they're very, very significant in causing the bonding, causing the attachment. But when used improperly, they don't work. And the reason why Hashem said there should be a time on and time off is because it helps the relationship. They bond together more perfectly because when there's a separation and there's a rebuilding of the desire and the and the longing for each other, and then there's a coming together, the cycles of the relationship work right. The love, attraction, and attachment happen properly. And in fact, that's we'll call that another reason for the 
halachas of nida. Now, it's important to understand that these are tamim, these are reasons, there are many, many reasons. The bottom line is that Hashem knows much better than we, than we'll ever know the reasons behind things. But these are two reasons behind the status of nida, why that status of tumah makes a husband forbidden to his wife. Again, the first reason being because a husband and wife coming together will hopefully at some point have a child, and a child born when a woman is in a state of nidus is a different sort of child. That's one reason. And again, the second reason is simply within the mechanics of the relationship, it enhances and helps them bond together in a much greater way. And I believe there's no greater proof than this than in our day and age when people have lost their sobriety, they've lost any understanding of the holiness of a marriage and what it means for a husband and wife to be together. Because I'll tell us that one of the holiest moments is when a husband and wife are physically intimate. In the Catholic world, it's viewed as dirty and it's ugly and etc. But that's clearly not the Torah's version. HaKadosh Baruch gave certain, certain appetites and desires and the reason why those appetites were given to man and to woman is because they're incredibly important for creating the bond, the attachment. You see, taking two human beings from vastly different backgrounds, different natures, putting them together and asking them to live together the rest of their life in harmony and peace is a very difficult task. And Hashem created different forces to help the couple bond. And one of those forces is physical intimacy. It causes a love, it causes an attachment. It's a tool that Hashem created to allow the couple to join together in peace and harmony and create a bond of love. I once heard my Rebbe, the Rishiv Zatzal, use an expression that I, when I was young, I almost fell off my chair. Rishiv Zatzal once used the expression, if a couple make love, make love. Now, I knew that there was a street expression from the 60s, a way of discussing, be a, an expression was make love. But here the Rishiv Zatzal was a holy man, a Gullaby Israel, I, I, I almost fell off my chair. And it wasn't until he used it repeatedly and I understand what the, understood what the Shiva Zatzal was teaching us. And that is that this act of physical intimacy causes a bonding, causes an attachment. It causes a husband to love a wife, a wife to love a husband. It's a coming together that causes a, an emotional connection. However, it has to be used properly, has to be used as Hashem designed it to be used, and then it works, and then it does what it's supposed to. But if you use it outside the parameters of the way the Torah said, well, guess what? It doesn't work. It ceases to accomplish what it should accomplish, and marriages fall apart. Now, this doesn't mean that if you keep the laws of need perfectly, your marriage is going to be perfect. There are obviously many other things, but this is a major tool in keeping a marriage running properly, keeping a marriage running as it should. Now, let's deal with a few other issues, because what happens in our parsha is, we see that there's this woman who gives birth. She's seven days. She's a nida, and that means to say that she's obviously she can't go into the base because she's tamea, but additionally she's forbidden to her husband. And then after that, the Torah says uh, the the may the may uh, tahara the may tahara are the thirty three days. And then the pasuk says of shmini yimol basar arloso on the eighth day, she the baby is given a milah. Now, the Rishonim are bothered by, that's 100% true, but what relevance does it have to our Parsha? And the Parsha we're dealing with is a Yuledis, a woman who gives birth. And what is the status when she gives birth in regards to her husband, in regards to the base of Megdish, 
<clears throat> why are we being told about Brismila here? Brismila, <clears throat> we learned the halachas back by Avram Avinu, and that really is a source. <clears throat> why are we being told here that on the eighth day, if she gives birth to a boy, you give the boy a mila? It doesn't seem to fit. So interestingly, <clears throat> the Surno says, what this is teaching us is <clears throat> that that's when the baby is ready for a bris. Not physically, spiritually. And he explains, Vitar of Ladli Kanis Bibris Kodesh. He explains that when the baby is in the mother's uterus, the baby is being kept alive by the mother, and there is nidus, there is a status of nida, and that blood that the baby is absorbing into his body is dam tamea. It's dam nidus atame. And it's not until the eighth day that that dam has passed from his body, and that's when he's ready to enter into the bris kodesh. You see, what the Surah is telling us is that Hashem has created the world in a very, very specific and perfect way. There's holiness, there's unholiness, there's standards of purity, standards of impurity, and we may not see them, but these spiritual planes, these spiritual elements exist. And if you gave a bris to a baby on the seventh day, forget physically whether the baby is physically mature enough or not. On a spiritual level, it wouldn't accomplish what it should because the baby isn't ready yet, it still was nen, it still has some of the dam nida in it, and it, on a spiritual level, it wouldn't be ready, it wouldn't accomplish what it should accomplish. A bris mila is a, a covenant between Hashem and the Jewish nation, but more than it, it takes a child and changes him. It's a bris that changes him, and on a spiritual level makes him more ro'i, more acceptable for limit Torah. When Unculus wanted to learn Torah, the Chachamim said to him, you cannot... It's not going to work. And it's a fascinating medrash. The medrash tells us that Unculus wanted to be Megayer. Now you have to appreciate something. If you open any Chumash, on the inside you'll see the Perush of Unculus. Unculus is Targum. The job of Targum is to take the Hebrew and define the Torah in Aramaic words. It's a job that's almost impossible because you have to take the essence, the Pshat, the various meanings, and to translate it, to take all the essence of the Torah and understand it so well that you could then translate it into a foreign language is something that's almost impossible. And Targum was something that was only allowed to be written by tremendous Chachamim, one of the those Chachamim, and the most accepted of the Targums is Targum Unculus. But Unculus was not Jewish when he began. Unculus, Medrash tells us, was the nephew of a Caesar, and Unculus recognized the beauty of Torah, and he recognized the truth of it. Now, in those days, you have to keep in mind that this was prior to the Catholic Church being really popular. It wasn't until the 4th century that Christianity really took off as a religion. And at that stage, many of the Romans were enamored with the Jews, and many of the Romans wanted to learn Torah, and they recognized the beauty of it. They certainly recognized the wisdom of it. The Caesar had a nephew whose name was Unculus, who was an extraordinarily intelligent young man, and this young man decided that he wanted to learn Torah. However, he recognized that his uncle, the Caesar, wouldn't be too happy about this. So he went to his uncle, and he said, Uncle, I'd like your advice. I want to go out into the world, and I want to win my fortune. What should I invest in? His uncle said, My nephew, if you need money, please, whatever you need, is uh, my, my treasure house is open. You don't have to go work for a living. No, 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 uncle, I want to learn about the ways of the world. Please direct me, give me advice. So his uncle said, here, invest in a schorah, invest in a type of merchandise that's now depressed. 
There are cycles in the marketplace. If it's now selling for cheap, <clears throat> eventually it'll come up. It'll sell for a higher price. Buy it when it's cheap. Eventually you'll sell it when it's more expensive. With those words, Uncle took leave of his uncle. He went to Eretzrol. He went to the yeshiva of Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Lazar, and he <clears throat> began learning Torah, or at least he thought he was. But they said to him, you can't learn. And he said, why not? They explained to him, it's not going to work. You don't have a bris milah. What do you mean? And they quoted various psukim, that not only is it forbidden for a guy to learn, but it's not going to work. Mechanically, it's not going to enter. At which point the Gemara says, the Medrash tells us, he was a Megayer, and he began learning, and he learned, and he learned, and he became a major, major Talmud Chacham. Eventually he came back to his uncle, and his uncle saw that he was different. He looked different. Obviously, he dressed differently. And he said, what did you do? And he said, my uncle, I went to, le- went, went to learn Torah. Why did you do that? Well, because my uncle, <clears throat> it's the greatest wisdom. But why did you, why'd you become Jewish? He said, because I couldn't learn Torah if I didn't <clears throat> become Jewish. But uncle, didn't you give me that advice? You're the one who told me, invest in a merchandise that's low. <clears throat> I found no nation as oppressed as the Jewish nation. And I know in the world to come, they're going to be the highest. I invested in them now. I made myself Jewish because I knew in the world to come forever, I'll be great. And his uncle was so impressed with that logic that his uncle took his hand and slapped Uncleus in the face. Now, it's an interesting story, but here's really the punchline. Uncleus clearly was a brilliant young man. You can't write Targum unless your mind is unbelievable. And he clearly was very, very motivated. He gave up a treasure house that his uncle offered him to go learn Torah. And why is it that the Chum said to him, you can't learn? Why is it that the Chum said to him, it wouldn't work? And Chazal explained to us that a Jewish baby, by being A, Jewish, B, being entered into the bris, changes. And he now is a different form. He's now holy. He's now receptive. And Torah will now enter into his bones, will enter into his mind. That doesn't mean to say you can't teach a certain process, a certain svaras and halacha to a guy, but the depth of Torah, the true understanding, the svaras being the dam and milsa, milsa, comparing, contrasting, really delving in and understanding on its depth. These are words of holiness, words that come from Hashem. And unless a Jew himself is A, ready, and B, had a bris meal, he's not prepared. What the Sword is telling us is that part of that process is the baby has to be spiritually ready. And until the Dam Nidus has separated from him, <clears throat> the bris won't have that effect. Explains the Sword for that reason you wait until the eighth day and then <clears throat> when the baby is then ready. Now, <clears throat> interestingly, the Cheskuni brings another reason why the Torah is telling us that on the eighth day the child should have a bris milah. Explains to Cheskuni that this is a day of Simcha. He quotes Shimon Bar Yochai, Why did the Torah say it's the eighth day? Because everyone there is going to be filled with joy. Everyone's coming to the bris, everyone's going to be happy. It's the Yom Mila. But but the father and the mother of the child will be atzavim, will be sad. Why? Because they're forbidden one to another. We need to say, if the Torah said, let's say, on the sixth day or the fifth day, you have a bris Mila. Obviously, the woman is Anida, and she's forbidden to her husband. So everyone's happy, and the father and the mother are unhappy. And says the Torah, wait until the eighth day. At that point, the woman could be Tahora, and therefore the husband and wife could be together. And for them too, it'll be a Simcha. If they're apart, they're sad. If it's in time when they're permitted, they'll be happy. Now, 
what this Chizkuni is teaching us is a fundamental concept. And that is that a husband and wife being together, not only is it a part of the bonding, it's a time of joy. It's a time of being together. When a husband and a wife are forbidden one to another, they're separate. They're apart, physically apart. On some level, they're emotionally apart. And it's not until they come together that there's a, a joy, a bonding, an attachment. Now, even though it's true in our day and age, most women who give birth, probably all women who give birth by the time of the bris is still a nida, but the Torah didn't want it to be that categorically it had to be that she was forbidden, and therefore the Torah Chizkuni tells us the Torah delayed it until the eighth day, <clears throat> she'll be able to, from a, the Torah's perspective, she'll be able to go to the mikvah, because it's provided she waited the seven days, from a Torah perspective, she'd be allowed to go into the mikvah. Again, <clears throat> in our day and age, it no longer applies, because you <clears throat> have the five days and the seven days, <clears throat> a minimum of 12 days, and anyway, it's irrelevant, because most women will bleed for long after that period anyway, but the point that the Cheskuni is teaching us is that the Torah didn't want it to be that the woman had to be forbidden to her husband because it shouldn't be a time of joy for everyone and not for them. And in the perfect working state, that's how it would be, they'd be permitted to one another. Now, obviously, even though they're physically not together when they're bringing the baby to a bris milah, but it's a time period. And again, the idea is that there are cycles in the relationship. There's a time of closeness and a time of stepping back. The time of stepping back <clears throat> is integral because it allows the relationship to <clears throat> change its <clears throat> waxing and waning. But when you come together, there's a joy, there's a happiness, there's a bonding. And the Torah wanted that to be <clears throat> the way that the child was entered into in the bris. Now, <clears throat> the <clears throat> much of this parsha is very complex and very deep. Because, again, there's a different seven days for a male, 14 days for a female, 33 days of the Demei Tahara for the base of Migdash, 66 for a female. So clearly, there are parts of this that are much deeper and get involved more in these issues of holiness, of Tumantara, statuses of purity and impurity. But the point is that this concept at least on some level we could relate to, at least on some level we could appreciate and understand it. Now, let's deal with another two elements here. One element is that either way, if a woman had a male or a female, either way, when she's finished after the Dam Nidus and after the time period of the Dam Tahara, she then goes to the Kohen and she brings two carbons. One is an Ola and one is a Chatas. Two separate carbons to be mechaper. Now, the Rishonim asks, <coughs> ask, Ramban, Ben Uchai asks the question, why in the world is this woman bringing a, an atonement sacrifice? This woman should be bringing a toda, a thanksgiving sacrifice, meaning to say she just had a child, a boy, a girl, whatever it may be. <coughs> she should be <coughs> overjoyed. She should be bringing <coughs> a carbon toda, a, a <coughs> carbon of thanksgiving, not a carbon chatas. Now, there are two different reasons brought as to why it is that she brings a Ola and a Chantas, two carbons of atonement. <clears throat> One reason is brought in the Gemara Nida, that at a certain point when she's in the Tsar Leda, when she's in the throes of agony of giving birth, she will <clears throat> swear either mentally or sometimes even proclaim, I'm never going to be with my husband again. Meaning to say the pain is so intense <clears throat> and so real and then at that moment, she says, I'm never going through this again. And because of that, she needs atonement. 
Now, if you ask women, you'll find that it's true, and that when they go through the pain, they may not remember years after, but ask them immediately after, there's a certain point when either mentally they'll think to themselves or sometimes even verbalize, I'm never going through this again. And that's a problem, because obviously that's a certain level of, on a certain level, rebelling against the system. They have an obligation to the husband, and that's not the way Hashem wants it. And for that reason, it explains Rabbeinu Chai, the Ramban, that's one of the reasons why she brings a chatas. She brings a carbon either for the desire, either for the mental thought process of deciding she'll never be with the husband, or the actual speaking it out. But there's Rabbeinu Machai that brings another pshat here that's so powerful that I believe it's very, very much worthy to speak out. He says, another reason why a woman has to bring a chatas has nothing to do with her. Nothing to do with anything she thought, nothing to do with anything she may have said. And it has to do with why she's going through the pain of labor. You see, when Hashem created the world, if it could be, there wasn't supposed to be child pain. There wasn't supposed to be labor pain. There wasn't supposed to be difficulty bringing up children. Men were not supposed to be working long, hard hours. Because of Adam and Chava's sin, the world was changed. Now women have a very, very great difficulty with pregnancy, with labor. Bringing up children afterwards is a very, very difficult process. Man has to work long, hard hours to earn his living. The curse to the women, the curse to the men, was because of Adam and Chava. And explains Rebbein Chai that that's exactly why she has to bring a chatas. Nothing to do with her, but because of the state. And then he says something powerful. He says, if it weren't for Chava, if it weren't for that sin, then a man and woman would be together lo bederach taiva, not with this lust and desire. Ela bederach teva gomer, it would just be natural. If it weren't for the sin of Chava, there wouldn't be desire, there wouldn't be drives, it just a man and woman would come together as anything naturally explains, as a fruit tree has fruit, it just has it. And so too, a man and woman would be together, there wouldn't be appetite, wouldn't be desire, all of these things wouldn't be there, it would be a very different coming together. And therefore, each woman has to bring a chatas because she's part of the cycle and she's being mechaper on what Chava did. Now, there's one element of this that we're not going to get involved in, and that is why would a woman today have to do something to mechaper on a Chava almost 6,000 years ago doing something. But let's focus on something else. What Rabbeinu Machai is telling us is that there used to be a different way of a man and a woman coming together, seemingly a better way. He explains that it used to be that a husband and wife would come together without desire, without interest, without attraction, without desire. They would just come together naturally like fruit trees, you know, just be together. And from that they would have children. But because Adam and Chava ruined the world, therefore this element called desire had to be introduced. Now, if you look at this, I believe you should ask a very powerful question. Attraction, desire, is an integral part of a successful marriage. A man's not supposed to be looking at other women, but he should be looking at his wife. A man should not desire other women, but he sure should desire his wife, and a wife should desire a husband. And that attraction, that desire, is an integral, vital part of a successful marriage. As a matter of fact, if a young woman and a young man come to me, and everything on paper is great. He, she's a wonderful young woman. He's a wonderful young, wonderful young man. And everything, they even they have a good time together. They're able to speak. They're able to com- 
converse with one another. But if there's no attraction, <clears throat> if each of them says, whatever, you know, just as soon be with somebody else or with my friends, my buddies or my, <clears throat> my girlfriends, <clears throat> if each of them says that, that's a very, very difficult situation. And it would be, <clears throat> I would be hard-pressed to recommend that they continue <clears throat> because without attraction, <clears throat> without physical desire, a marriage is doomed to failure. Because the reality is, in the heavy traffic of life, in the thrusts and throes of what we all live through, if a husband and a wife don't have a time when they come together, if they don't have desire, if they don't have attraction, much of the bond of love isn't going to be created. Hashem gave us these forces, desire, attraction, because it's part of creating that bond of love. And a marriage without love is going to fail because you could have the nicest people in the world, they could have all the wonderful midos in the world, but life is very demanding. And if there isn't a bond of love, they're going to fail. And one of the tools to create that bonding is desire, is attraction. So why would Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar tell us there used to be a time when things were much better, when things were holier, <clears throat> when a man didn't desire his wife, when a wife didn't desire her husband, <clears throat> when they were Ganeidin? That sounds backwards. And I believe the answer is, that what Rabbeinu is teaching us is that, yes, man and women used to be different. And in that different state, they didn't need desire. Meaning, there was a time when a man was so pure, focused, and holy, a woman was so pure, focused, and holy, that they could live together in matrimony, they could be perfectly married and live together in peace and harmony without these forces. That's not our world today. That's not after the hate, things changed. Avram Avinu and Sarimenu were on that level. It's true. At a certain point when they're going down to Mitzrayim, Avram says, Atta Yadati, now I know that you're a beautiful woman, says Rashi. Up until that point, he didn't know. Why? Because they, they didn't need this tool. Physical attraction wasn't relevant to them. Why? Because they were on such a lofty level. Their midos was so perfected. They were so generous, other-scented, and they were so giving that they could live together in peace and harmony despite not having the physical attraction, despite not using the system. But for any other human who would try that, forget it. It's not going to work. Because at the end of the day, the bond of love doesn't come so easy. And that attachment needs help. And physical attraction and desires are proper, are good. And the husband and wife coming together is one of the holiest acts it causes a bonding, it causes an attachment. And in our world today, it's a vital, integral part of a successful marriage. What Rabbi Nochai is teaching us is that once upon a time it was different, but once upon a time it was different because man and women were different. And because of that, it was a different world. Now, one more step I'd like to do on Brismila, and that's only because we brought up the topic the Sefer Chinuch explains to us that by all rights, bris mila should never be. There should be no such mitzvah. Sefer Chinuch on the mitzvah mila explains that by all rights, every Jew should be born with a mila. A Jewish baby, boy that's born, should have a mila. Why? Because it's a covenant. It's a bris. It's a permanent agreement between Hashem and the Jewish nation. And by all rights, he explains that the Jewish baby boy should be born, born with a bris. However, why is it that Hashem gave us the mitzvah to do? He explains because what a bris is, is perfecting the human being. Hashem put one part in the human that's not needed, that's the orla. And Hashem gave us the mitzvah to cut it off and thereby perfecting the human. 
And what this is to teach us, explains the Sefer Chinnah, is just like you can perfect the human body with this action, so too you're capable of perfecting your nefesh by acting appropriately. And what the Sefer Chinuch is teaching us is that brismila is a major lesson. You take an imperfect baby, <clears throat> cut off the orla, and you make it perfect. And what is that teaching us? <clears throat> that teaches us, just like the physical, which is so corporeal, so heavy, so difficult to change, <clears throat> you can change with an act. <clears throat> surely your nefesh, surely the essence of you, <clears throat> which is far more malleable, you can change. And the lesson of bris mila is <clears throat> that you can change. And this Sefer Chinuch is rather perplexing. Why? Because what the Sefer Chinuch is telling us is that by all rights, every Jewish boy should have been born with a bris. Now, wouldn't that have been a phenomenal lesson to every one of us? Imagine for a moment that every Jew at birth was substantially different than any other Gentile. We'd understand clearly that we're the chosen nation. We'd have a sign that we're different, we're distinct, we're way heads and shoulders above any other nation, chosen for a particular mission, the Am HaNivchar Hashem's chosen. Isn't that integral? <clears throat> Wouldn't that make such a tremendous difference in all of our avodas Hashem, in all of our lives, in the way we act? So why didn't Hashem allow the baby boy to be born that way? <clears throat> that lesson is surely much more important than this other lesson. And I believe what the Sefer Chinuch is telling us that no, it's wonderful, and it's very important to know that you are bonim l'shem l'kechem, that you are children to Hashem. It's important to know that you're an Amma school, that you're a distinct nation, and that when you walk in the street, you carry with dignity your head as a Jewish person, as Hashem's chosen people. That's very important. But far more important than that, that is to know that I can change. The reason why Hashem didn't have the baby boy born mild already is because we're supposed to learn the lesson, far more important lesson, that I can change. <clears throat> that my attitudes, my character traits, whether it be my anger, my jealousy, my arrogance, those things are subject to my change. By acting appropriately, by following the Torah system, I make myself into a different person. And what the Sefer Chinuch is teaching us is, as integral as it is to know that we are the eternal people, that we're Hashem's chosen nation, even more important is this other lesson, that through my actions I can change, and that's what the Torah is telling us by teaching us that the baby is born with a mila. You can now change it physically to understand that you can certainly change your spiritual sense.